Professor Forsyth, in the previous interview, we reached the end of your time as senior lecturer at the University of Cape Town. But before we move to your Cambridge days, I wonder if I could ask you about your experience at the University of the Western Cape, where you taught law. You mentioned this in your private international law book. Yes. Um, well, I've explained to you how it came about. I was, I was at UCT and I was willing to, to teach at UWC on a part-time basis. And I was approached to, to teach jurisprudence. And I've seldom taught jurisprudence, although I have a very strong interest in it. So I was very happy to go out and, and teach jurisprudence at the University of the Western Cape. And it, it opened my eyes a great deal to see a university like that operating. Um, it was a... The, the, the formal language of the university at that stage was Afrikaans. And the audience consisted in the main of people in the South African jargon are called coloured, people of mixed race. Um, and, and, and so I, I taught jurisprudence as sort of a, a broad jurisprudential court course starting with, starting with the Greeks and ended with, ending with Professor H.L.A. Hart. Um, so it was a very broad brush course. Um, and the only thing of, of note that I've mentioned is that I had two lectures on Marxism. Again, this is in the somewhat fitted political atmosphere of South Africa. And I gave my one lecture on Marxism, and the, in which I build up the Marxist theory so to show how persuasive it is and how valuable it is in explaining things that happen, um, or how, how persuasive it is in explaining things that happen. Um, and when I finished the lecture, the students, I'd always like to think as a result of my lecture, but in fact, I'm sure they were quite unrelated, had a, had a protest and burnt down the lecture theatre the day afterwards. Interesting. So I had to give my second, second lecture on Marxism in which I explained all its weaknesses in a, in a different lecture theatre. That was the. That was the way it, it was. Uh, I taught on a similar basis. Um, some years later, at the University of Fort Hare. Um, and the your life in the university was much disrupted by student protests of one kind or another, which, on, on the whole, I I was in sympathy with the the student protests, but it it made for a lively um, a, a lively time and perhaps if I can tell you the story about the University of Fort Hare um, I arrived at the University of Fort Hare as a visiting lecturer teaching private international law, as it happens, to one student. They only had one student of private international law. This was in about 1982, 
and I couldn't give my lecture because there were armed men on every corner of the campus, the, 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 the Siskai police. Um, and the students had protested and had been set a deadline that they had to return to lectures by a certain point. Otherwise, they'd all be dismissed. And they didn't return to lectures and they were all dismissed and sent away um, from, Fort, from Fort Hare. And some of the students were unhappy with this. And I was one of the members of staff who was known to their lawyers, which they had brought in from Cape Town. Um, Ian Farnham was one of them. He was a, a well-known counsel in, in the Cape, and I think afterwards a, afterwards a judge. And one of the issues was whether the students didn't go back to lectures because they were so scared by all the armed men on the campus. And the rector of the university made an affidavit in the proceedings to say there were no armed men on campus on that day. And uh, I then made a made an affidavit saying I was there on the, that day and there were indeed armed men on the campus. <laughs> And this all featured prominently in the litigation over, over when they challenged their, their dismissal. And they lost before the Siskai courts. The, the judge saying at one point that he noticed the affidavit that I had made, but he didn't accept it, he didn't believe it. So I was dis disbelieved on, under oath in the Siskai and High Court but I see that rather as a badge of honour. Was uh, Ian Farnham acting for the students? He was acting for the students, yes. Right. I'm not sure how their, their, their challenge was funded at this stage, but they could, or Ian Farnham might, might have been acting pro dare, but it was a course celebra yes. at, at one time. Thank you. Uh, so, in 1982 to 1984, you completed your PhD, two yeah, years it took yeah. you. And I wonder why you chose the topic, the appellate division of the Supreme Court of South Africa from 1950. Well, it's a reflection of what I was interested in at that time. And, I mean, I, I turned to law after having tried most other things. But I turned to law with a sort of naive understanding that one might achieve justice through the law. And essentially this narrows down to a question of, of how did the judiciary perform? Did the, did the judiciary perform well in the circumstances? Or did it perform badly? Um, and my thesis was really an attempt to do that. Um, the judges at that time had a sort of very simplistic or almost vulgar approach to jurisprudence in that they thought law was the command of the sovereign and you had no choice but to obey what the sovereign commanded. And 
the account of you was that led by another interviewee in the series, I think, Professor John Ducard, who took the view that when the law was still seldom so certain that the answer to a particular question was compelled, had to be reached, and therefore the judges had a judicial choice in many, many cases, and they should make the choice that favoured um, human rights and personal liberty and, and, and so forth. And they failed to do that and they were therefore open to similar condemnation as that to which the executive was subject. Um, and I wanted to explore that, not so much from a jurisdiction, potential point of view or an empirical point of view, but just to see whether it was right to criticise the judiciary on that ground. Um, and ideally churned out my thesis, which I really enjoyed doing. Colin Turpin was my supervisor, and he was a very gentle, perceptive man and made many great improvements to my thesis. Uh, and I came to the conclusion, justified by a detailed analysis of all the leading cases, that the judges had often had in, had in, in law choice. They weren't in law bound to, to decide the way that they did. But um, <coughs> and in making those choices, they'd very often. Um, <coughs> they very often made a choice that favoured the executive rather than rather than liberty the liberty liberal principles that were <coughs> to be found in the Roman Dutch law um, so that was quite a condemnatory conclusion that I reached and why the thesis when it was published was called In Danger for Their Talents. Yes. It's the general idea that they could have done better. Right. I mean, what, to, to give, give an example, um, the lives of many people in South Africa were ruined <coughs> through the operation. So I analysed the, the decided cases in the appellate division very closely and showed that there were some in which the had very little choice, and there were others in which they had a wide choice. So you could assist, you could uh, assess how they how they performed. And on the whole, I found came to the conclusion that they've not performed well. Um, your research for this would have been conducted uh, in the, of course, the old schools where the library was situated. Yes. And at that point, uh, Clive Perry had died in 1982, and Keith McVeigh had taken over in 1983. Mm. Do you recall any of these two? I don't really know Clive. I don't really know Clive Perry. I knew who he was, of course. Yeah. But um, I didn't. I didn't know him personally. I knew uh, Keith McVeigh in the Old Squire. He was one of the, one of the characters. And uh, with 
Kurt Lipstein, of course, always to be found in the in the Squire Lower Library. We had quite a distinctive smell to it of sort of old musty books and polished linarium. Always made me think of the the Squire Law Library. Um, and I spent many, many hours working there. Um, the path of the, 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 the research student is often a lonely one. Uh, so it was always nice to foregather for amongst, uh, with other research students. And I was blessed by the fact that I was a student in, in Keys a member of Keys at the time, so one could just pop across the road to the MCR in Keys to have a cup of coffee or whatever. It was it was quite sort of social edge to life in the life in the squire. I remember I remember Keith McVeigh helping me obtain what was what was the first report I read on Lexus. You had to go and talk to the librarian about it before you could, could log on to Lex Lexus and you logged on through a, a telephone modem and eventually the the, the, the report may be, may be printed out in a unconventional format. But what, how the world has changed since that. Yes. Your thesis was published by Juta in 1985. And uh, we'll visit this in your next interview when we come to talk about some scholarly work. We'll yeah. talk about that. Um, from 1983 to the present, you've been at Cambridge. And from 1983 to 2002, you were Director of Studies, Fellow in Law at Robinson College. Uh, what were your duties as Director of Studies? Well, nothing exceptional on the, about my duties as director of studies. One had to participate in the in the interviewing of candidates and the decision making on which candidates to admit or not to admit. And I was took that quite conscientiously because you're really changing the the lives of of people whom one admits or which one doesn't admit. Um, so I, I, I did that, I think, quite quite diligently, and then I, I had to teach, to supervise, to supervise the young, and I taught supervising five subjects in about seventeen hours a week, which is much broader range than would be commonplace these days, um, and. As a teaching fellow, I, I had to do a fair bit of teaching, but I I did more teaching than, than I was required to do, chiefly because I, I came to enjoy it. I like to see the students' faces light up when they see, when they understand a point. And so I like teaching, particularly in supervisions, although I never had an undergraduate supervision myself in Cambridge because I was never an undergraduate in Cambridge. So I have no experience of, of it from, on, from the receiving end. So I hope my supervisions, which have been made up entirely by me, 
up to step to to standard, but I think they were. Um, so you, that's what I did as as directive studies, and um, I taught and directed studies, and of course. I've left out the major duty of the director of studies to arrange the supervisions for um, for the for his or her students, um, and I always found I always found colleagues very very helpful, and always uh, all faculties different from other parts of the university where they wage great battles over who's prepared to supervise and who isn't. Most people in the law faculty were very helpful and ran smoothly. So you uh, were associated with the college right from its beginnings? We're very um, pretty close to its beginnings. I was elected a fellow in, I think, 1983. Right. Uh, and I was... Uh, I was elected pre-elective, pre which which um, supposedly because I would be able to handle the Latin. And I was, I was prelector in the, in the first occasion that Robinson presented a full trance of over 100 students to general admission to get their degrees. That was in 83, and I think these students would have been admitted in 18 in 79 or 79 or 80. And, um, apropos your fellowship, do you recall the tenure at Robinson of one of our recent Goodhart interviewees, the late Sir John Laws? Of course, of course I do. I mean, 92. I recall John Laws as a friend rather <laughs> than necessarily Goodhart professor. Um, I was fortunate enough when I was using one of my sabbaticals to to qualify for the bar to be John Rawls's pupil, and I had a most exciting, exciting time um, as his pupil. I would rush around behind him as we ran through the courts. He was treasury devil at the time, which is. Um, a noble office to who the Treasury Devil is permanently employed by the government to defend it in court. And these means essentially in judicial reviews. And I would dig out the authorities for John Light and draft opinions which he didn't necessarily agree with. And we'd attend innumerable conferences with its civil servants to discuss their legal problems. And it gave me an insight, an invaluable insight into the operation of judicial review and, and, and the operation of government litigation as a, as a whole. To be able to sense when government is fighting a point on tactical grounds or when they're fighting a point on strategic grounds, it's rather different from ordinary litigants who just have their own interests in mind that the, government always has a broader public interest to consider. And so that introduced me to, um, to judicial review in a way that I hadn't previously uh, experienced. And it also introduced me to John Laws, who was a most remarkable man 
ebullient and witty and um, and really brilliant. He could, when you were discussing a point of law with him, he had the ex the, the, the barrister's knack, the successful barrister's knack, of being able to make pick from a whole range of different issues and arguments and things that have been put forward, the one crucial one, and, and rely on it. And if you were arguing with him of a point of law and you made, you made a, a certain point saying, and say, this must be right because of X, he would say, well, that may be so, but if you consider X more carefully, you will see that it in fact supports the opposite proposition. To twist your words in that way, in a very persuasive way, and which is why I was such a brilliant advocate. Um, and uh, probably one of the best advocates at the bar, almost certainly one of the best advocates at the bar. And then he went on to the to the bench, and. Um, was a very successful judge, although, <coughs> although sadly he was never made it to the Supreme Court. Um, and I think I don't have any private knowledge or anything like that as to why he wasn't elected to the Supreme Court. He came close quite often, but I think the the body that elects Supreme Court judges possibly found him too colourful. Not, not, not a safe pair of hands if you knew what he might go off. He might follow some brilliant idea rather further than it's than grey grey people would like. So he never made it to the, the Supreme Court and I think he was very disappointed by that. But he was um, He was always interested in academic life, which is probably why he agreed to let me be his pupil, because I'd take a more academic approach to things. Um, he was always interested in the academic life. He'd, uh, he'd been at Oxford and read, read, uh, read greats. Um, and he wanted to go on to, he put his hat in the ring for an All Souls Fellowship. Uh, and was disappointed when he didn't get it. He might have had an academic career if All Souls had elected him to, to one of their, their fellow, a prize fellowship. Might have had an academic career and not a judicial career. But as it was, he had a judicial career. Um, and I don't think this is confidential. I was, I in fact proposed his election to the Goodhart Chair. I was on the, on the committee at the time and I, I, I proposed him and nominated him and Lord Judge who was on the committee spoke out very strongly in favour of John Rawls as well. So he became Goodhart Chair. Was held in very high esteem and affection by everyone yes. during his tenure. Indeed. Anyway, in Robinson, 
he became the he had he, he was already a fellow of Robinson because again that was that was my doing. I proposed him as an honorary fellow when I returned from from the bar, um, and he was elected to a, a fellowship at Robinson years before he was good art professor. And of course, as a good art professor, he would probably have been elected to uh, a fellowship at a bigger, more prestigious college, perhaps. Um, but in fact, he was very loyal to Robinson and insisted that he was going to stay in Robinson. And, and, and so he, he became a stalwart of what is called Wednesday Night Supper when Fellows of Robinson would gather for an informal supper in the in the SCR, and when the and John really reveled in that because they were often it wasn't it wasn't talking shop about what should, how the college should be run, but it was talking about more uh, uh, more political or intellectual matters, and the debate would often be quite rambustious and and lively, and he became a stalwart of that and was was always or to be found on Wednesday night suppers unless he had something else wrong. And then of course there was the the great tragedy of the death of his wife Sophie when during the course of his tenure as a good art professor um, it seemed so incredibly unfair that she should be taken taken from him in that way. They'd been they had a daughter, have a daughter called Margaret Grace, who was also who loved her father very deeply and though she was very upset by this by, by the death. So it was a huge as inevitably is the case when someone dies like that before their time. It's a it's a huge tragedy, but one that the college felt very keenly because he'd come to be part of part of the college. It was always to be found at feasts and formal dinners and things like that. What a lovely account, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, you were a university lecturer in law from 1988 to 2000, and at that time the faculty was still in the old schools. So, uh, do you have any memories of the colourful but cramped quarters that you you would have occupied in the old schools? Oh yes, well, one didn't have any quarters at all. If one, um, well, as, as a student, I would I would sit in one of the reading rooms, and as a as a don, I would. Well, I would go into the square much more frequently than I do these days. The reason, the reason being, of course, that you didn't have any electronic resources. If you were going to work in um, do serious work, you would need to have access to a law library, and you'd have to be in that law library physically in, in order to do that. So I spent a lot of time, um, and in the little little rooms that were the, the, the main hall of the Squire Law Library up on the, the first floor had a whole series of little rooms off to off it 
And again, you'd find Kurt Lipstein and Bill Wade and me. <laughs> uh, and Kurt had his own little room and Bill had his own little room. And afterwards it became the room that Bill and I used as uh, we worked together on an you know, administrative floor. Um, uh, when the move was made in 1995, did you have any involvement <coughs> in the administration or the organisation? No, I didn't. I, um, I attended various faculty discussion mornings and I remember one in particular when Norman Foster came to introduce his, his design for the law faculty to, to the faculty and the meeting of the faculty took place in the um, Forgotten the name of the room in Keys, one of the one of the, the, the larger public rooms, and um, and Norman Foster explained his design, great big pictures of what it would look like, and so forth and so on. And some member of the faculty, I can't remember which it was, raised the issue of noise and the prospect that noise might filter through into the supposedly quiet reading areas of the Squire Law Library. Um, and Norman Foster said you know, he knew what he was doing. Noise was not going to be a problem because it would all have died down before it reached the, the, um, reached the quiet areas. And there were several members of the faculty making a note of this this representation that induced the contract, because of course that afterwards became a great controversy as to uh, who would to pay for the or what um, what we called in the faculty remedial action to build the glass wall but now ensures that the noise from the vestibule of the squire full library doesn't intrude into the quiet areas of the library. He, that was known as the remedial works amongst the members of the faculty and known as specification enhancements uh, by, 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 by Foster. Did the faculty have to pay well, um, I think it's all we were all sworn to secrecy and not, we're not supposed to tell, tell, tell a word. But I think it's enough to say that the faculty didn't pay. Very interesting. Um, so, what, what subjects did you teach during this time? Um, well, I, I supervised uh, Roman law, administrative law, conflict of laws. Um, constitutional law and did I mention conflict of laws at the beginning those were the subjects I supervised at that time but I was trying to shed my subjects 
uh, as far as university lectures are concerned. I started off by teaching in the public law seminar course and the conflict of laws LLM course. Although those, sorry, those were both LLM courses, the public law LLM course and the um, and the conflict of laws course for the um, for the LLM as well, and then. I slowly got into teaching admin law. I think I taught admin law, lectured in admin law for something like 25 years, all told it. It became my, it became my mainstay. But I always taught Roman law because I enjoyed Roman law. And I also taught the public law seminar on the, on the LLB or, or rather on the BA law and the undergraduate degree. Um, I don't think I, I taught anything else, nothing else occurs to me as I'm sitting here. Um, we had an interesting experiment with the, uh, with Duke University, and I participated in that, where we had a joint course with Duke University. And the, the courses had the same syllabus, but different, um, but different assessment. We assessed them in the normal way, and the, the Duke students weren't students of Cambridge, and the Cambridge students weren't students of Duke. And this was done by an early kind of Zoom video call, video conference between us and 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 Duke in North Carolina. And it's, it, it wasn't a sort of startling success, I don't think. The, the students seemed reasonably happy with it, but because it was supposed to be a mixture of US and UK law, I think one got to the situation where it wasn't very advanced US law and it wasn't very advanced UK law. So, that was an interesting experiment that I was involved with. So during this time, 1989-1995, you became the University Representative of the Cambridgeshire Police Authority. And I wonder if you could uh, tell us something about this and your personal interest in police matters. Well, I was interested in, in the police because the constitutional status of the police. Because, of course, I'd, that's something that I'd knocked my head against in the situation in South Africa. How do you determine that the police, how do you ensure that the police are within the law? And so, and then in Cambridge, the University of Cambridge, through the proctors, had long been involved, for centuries had been involved with the policing of Cambridgeshire. And there were, I think in total, the two, two proctors, two proctors in office, and then two other members of the university were appointed by the university to the Cambridgeshire Police Authority. And there was specific statutory power for that under the 1964 Police Act. 
And so I was quite interested in this and David Williams was actually one of the representatives on the Cambridge Police Authority. And he suggested that perhaps I might want to become a university representative. And I said yes and so I agreed to do it. Um, I was first of all a university representative and then when I became proctor, I became, uh, 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 I became a member of the police authority as a proctor ex officio. Um, and then I was abolished for the first time. That is when Michael Howard, as Home Secretary, introduced legislation that removed anomalies such as university representatives and repealed the relevant part of the Police Act. Um, but established in its stead a system of what was called independent members that were appointed by the Home Secretary, were actually appointed by the, the police authority subject to approval of the Home Secretary. And so I put across my hat in the ring and I duly became a university representative, so I became a, an independent member of the Cambridge Police Authority, uh, which was fine. I'll, I'll talk a bit later about what, what sort of work I did in the Police Authority. Um, but I served as an independent member and I was renewed once as an independent member. Um, but then I renewed once. When I, when I came up for renewal the, the second time, David Blunkett was Home Secretary and he refused to approve my appointment. The, the police authority wanted to keep me, but the Home Secretary refused to, to approve my appointment. I think I was just, just a, a pale male Oxbridge man and he, he thought the time has come for somebody else, a more diverse person to be there. So I was not renewed. So I have the distinction of having been abolished on the police authority, both by a Conservative government and by a Labour government. And that's when I ceased, ceased to be a member of the authority. And I always have wanted to do other things as well. And that's when I began to think of throwing my hat in the ring as a, as a recorder, as a judge. But perhaps I should tell you about um, my work on the police authority. I think the police authority, which consists, consisted in those days uh, of uh, a mixture of magistrates and county councillors and then the university representatives, the I think I benefited from the fact that I was politically completely impartial and they knew that I was politically completely impartial. Um, and so I found myself doing all kinds of jobs when, which might have been done by other members of the, of the authority, but which they, they were too politically divided to do it easily. Um, so I, I chaired several appointments committees for the appointment of chief constables and 
and assistant deputy chief constables. And I ran for many years the lay visitor scheme, which is a scheme whereby good, good citizens appointed by the police authority have the right to turn up at any police station at any time to say they've come on a visit and they go and ask the prisoners uh, whether they've got any complaints, um, whether they've been well treated and so forth. Questions, questions of that kind to serve as a, as a guarantee that there's been no abuse or oppression in, in police stations. And so I did that for many years. I thought it was quite a useful thing to do. Um, and then I also chaired several disciplinary hearings um, several of disciplinary hearings against chief constables and and so forth. Um, and there again, I I was I think I may say I was completely impartial. I tried very hard to be impartial at any rate, um, and they seemed to go quite well. One 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 case. One particular case that I remember was the case of a policeman who arrested arrested a woman on the streets of Cambridge and raped her, which is obviously a dreadful crime. Um, and she complained and the investigation was launched and the miscreant was identified and charged and convicted and sentenced to, I think, 16 years in total. And the police authority removed his pension as they were entitled to do. Um, and I chaired the committee that decided that he was going to lose his pension. And this was fought by him, saying contrary to natural justice and various other things. And when, when we didn't listen with a favour on his representations, he took us on appeal to the Crown Court. And I went up to the, to the meeting of the Crown Court in Leeds, where they were holding it for some reason. And appeared in front of, it was in fact a High Court judge, I can't remember which one, in the Crown Court to give evidence as to why this policeman had had his pension removed. And I'm pleased to say well, the, the appeal was, was rejected and he, he then went to Europe and lost in Europe as well, so his pension was removed. So this, this kept me busy. And, and I enjoyed the work in the police authority and was sorry when I was abolished but I was not approved by David Blunkett but uh, that led me on to becoming a, becoming a judge myself. Which we'll come to. Um, 
you were a member of the Law Faculty Board yes. on two occasions, 94 to 97 and 99 to 2003. Uh, can you say anything about this? Well, there are innumerable things that we dealt with then. And of them spring to, spring to mind. Um, I was on the board when I don't know how much of this is, is confidential, but we we had a change of chairman, if you remember, when one chairman was forced out. Yes. That I think would have been the biggest um, event here in my time on the on the faculty board. Very traumatic, but the reasons seemed to be to be clear at the time. Certainly, the faculty board was pretty unanimous in the end that it had to happen. Um, and of course, we moved into the new building. We, we dealt endlessly with the deficiencies in the building. That was under the... It was John Tiley, of course, who oversaw the change from one building to the other, and then um, John Spencer, who who then had to make the building work and had innumerable problems with the with the ventilation and the plumbing and more particularly the um, more particularly the construction of the remedial works to make the library workable. Um, yes, I, I was in all those, all those things but I, I hope I played a constructive part. In your CV, you mentioned that in 1993, you convened a one-day conference on the Law Commission's working paper on judicial review. Yes. Yes, that's that's, that's quite, quite interesting. It, it, in, in some ways, it was a conference not about the Law Commission's working paper on judicial review, but on other matters altogether. It was the decision of M, which is a case about a man who'd applied as an asylum seeker and had been turned down. And the date of M must have been 1990 or something like that. Um, so it shows how long these difficulties over immigration and asylum seekers have been with us. Anyway, M was turned down he came originally from Zaire and he was ordered to be removed to Zaire. He was on his way to on his way to Heathrow Airport to fly out when he changed his lawyers and his new lawyers ordered um, an urgent judicial review saying he must be stopped. 
not be removed. And the judge, hearing this urgent judicial review, said, I can't possibly decide this matter that just comes before me suddenly this afternoon. Would you, it says to counsel for the Home Secretary, would you be prepared to undertake that M would not be removed until I've had my ch chance to go into these papers thoroughly and make up my mind? Counsel for the Home Secretary said, yes, of course. M would not be removed, give that undertaking. And in fact, M was removed to Zaire, flew out via, via Paris that evening. And M's lawyers, of course, were incandescent. And the duty judge was, the, the, the judge was then asked to make an order for the return of M. Mandatory, mandatory interim injunction that M be returned, made against the secretary. And I just stopped being John, John Laws's pupil at the time, but I think I was in court for the one one day, saw some of it. John Laws, of course, is the Treasury Devil, was acting for the Home Secretary. And he persuaded the Home Secretary that in fact, you could not make a coercive order such as an interim injunction against the Minister of the Crown because they partook of the immunity from legal process of the, of the Crown. This is, this is what John Laws persuaded the, the judge. Consequently, the judge discharged the injunction and M, st M stayed in Zaire and his subsequent fate is unknown. So, so that was the, that was the case. That was the case of M. How did we get onto him? How did we get onto him? Um, this was your your commission working. Oh yes. And M was on its way to the, the House of Lords, and this law commission working paper came out, which obviously dealt with similar subjects to to, to those dealt with in M. But I convened this conference and had, I think, at least three Lord Lords there. Um, one that I remember in particular is Harry Wolfe, Sir Henry Brooke, but he was only Court of Appeal. But there was a, a, quite a galaxy of judges there altogether. And Sir William Wade was given the opportunity to to address the conference on why M was wrong. Um, and this was the general review of the conference. And when it, when it got off, I can even remember seeing Bill Wade sitting next to Harry Wolfe, explaining to Harry Wolfe what, what, had, what had gone wrong in him and how it was incompatible with the rule of law to have a Minister of the Crown not being subject to judicial review. 
when, when the matter got to the House of Lords, M was rejected and it was established that uh, an intramandatory injunction will lie against the minister and he could be found guilty of contempt and theoretically even imprisoned for failure to obey a court order. Um, so that was that was the that was the the M case and the story that lies behind that that conference on judicial review. You initiated and organised two further conferences during your time as lecturer, both on public law, constitutional reform in the UK, and judicial review, both of which were published by heart. Yes. Well, the first conference, the one on constitutional reform, was in 1999, I think. The It was just after the Labour government had come in and they obviously had a programme of constitutional reform. Human Rights Act being perhaps the most prominent one, the LMA element. And so we put on this conference as a way of looking critically at these plans for constitutional reform. And I think it was a very successful conference but I remember, and it certainly had an impact upon the constitutional deliberations um, subsequently. But I remember it particularly, but it was also the occasion of Bill Wade's 80th birthday. And we presented to him a festgrift called the Golden Metwand and the Crooked Cord, or the Crooked Cord and the Golden Metwand really about the role of the rule of law in, in judicial review. Um, and it, and it, it was published by Oxford. Um, and it, it's been a, quite an important book too, I think. Um, so that's what I did with that conference and the, the subsequent conference on judicial review Judicial Review and the Constitution by Heart is a book that I edited, although I contributed a couple of chapters to it as well. And it's essentially about the great debate um, over the, ju the juristic basis of judicial review. Um, I hold into the view that it was, basis of judicial review is essentially um, the ultra-virus doctrine that the law lays down the limits to the powers of the individual civil servant or minister. And judicial review is just the process whereby you see whether those powers have been properly, lawfully exercised or not. Um, this has been a great cause of debate between those who favour the ultra-various doctrine in one or other of its forms and those who would rather say that it's the common law that justifies judicial review. The, that debate still rages on. It's really, it's myself and Mark Elliott 
versus Paul Craig mostly. Anyway, we, we, we had a small conference on the juristic basis of judicial review. It was held in St. John's. Um, these things were thrashed out. No great conclusion was reached, but it was published as a book. And it's a book that collects all the relevant articles together. So you can, if, you, if, if your lecturer says to you in your constitutional course that next year we're going to Next week we're going to talk about judicial review and its juristic basis. You can just take this one book and go away and find all the relevant articles in one place. So it's done quite well. It's a very successful book. Thank you. During this time you also visited Ukraine. This was 1998 as part of a foreign office funding yeah. party to a workshop on the political law. And I wondered what you learned about the differences between the UK and Ukrainian views on the subject, bearing in mind that at that time it had only been independent of the Russian Empire since 1991. Yes. Well, I went to do the workshop on John Administrative Law and spent, I think it was in total about 10 days in Ukraine. It wasn't the kind of workshop where you could really get to grips with issues because of the difficulties of the language. Everything was done with a simultaneous translation. But I'd never find simultaneous translation anything like as good as actually the ability to communicate through using a, a common language. Um, but I spent many hours listening to learned papers and delivering some comments and papers of my own with, a, with, a, with the whole team. There were, I think, six of us being sent out by the Foreign Office altogether. Um, I wish I could tell you that I foresaw in my experience of, of Ukraine, what's happened subsequently, but I'm afraid I didn't. There was a strange, strange sense, which one of the most obvious things we were aware of is that there was the division between Russian-speaking and Ukrainian-speaking elements of the population. And some of the Ukrainian lawyers had been influenced not it seemed by Russian law, but by French law, of all things. They had lots of French ideas about how their administrative law should be, should be developed. Um, but it was right at the beginning of their life as a state, and they had a long, long way to go before they had anything really comprehensive or working properly. Um, but I was impressed by their dedication to, to want to become part of the Western world rather than the Eastern world. Um, so they argued, argued strongly 
in favour of the kind of thing that I was talking about in my papers, except for the ones who'd been to a university in France or whatever and didn't think that there should be anything anything less than a pure French system of administrative law wasn't wasn't really on. But it was interesting to be in, in Ukraine at that time. There was a sense of everything was fluid and, and any, practically anything could change. And obviously some of the people, particularly in the government of Ukraine that we met, were, um, were really quite, quite keen to establish themselves in the Western sphere to escape the core of Russia. One, one, one thing that was clear to me, and I, I think it's completely non-controversial, is that Ukraine and Russia have been linked together historically for hundreds of years. And Russian culture and the Russian church and so forth seems to have started in Ukraine and then spread to, to Moscow St. Petersburg. So uh, they are they are rivals that have been linked together for hundreds of years. We must now wait and see what happens. Indeed. You also went to Malawi in nineteen ninety eight as an advisor on the planned constitutional reform. Yeah. That was it was something that I greatly enjoyed doing altogether and I don't want to make this too much of an advertisement about the things that I did, but I suppose it's as it is. Um, when they reached independence, or rather when Malawi underwent a process of constitutional reform in the early 1990s, when they'd eventually managed to get rid of Hastings Banda, who'd led the Malawi since independence. They had a conference and they threw together a constitution largely based on the South African constitution. That just wouldn't work. It was, it was thrown together and illogical in a thousand and one different ways. And I, the choice fell to, to upon me to go out as I was technical advisor to the Law Commission, is my title. And we went through the Malawian constitution section by section, and there are about 200 sections in the, in the constitution. Um, the Law Commission was very diverse, didn't have only lawyers on it, it had lots of representatives of civic society and so forth on it. And so we had these endless meetings going through the constitution article by article. And then when the end of sessions ended, I would go off and draft the necessary changes that would need to be made in accordance with our recommendations. And then the first item of business the next day would 
me to see that we that what I'd come up with overnight was in fact what we we'd agreed the day before. And so I spent under under the law commission I, I had two trips to Malawi. And what was quite nice, I got to know most of the judges. And because there were lots of judges on the the law commission, it was a rather large and unwieldy body in addition to the non-lawyers. Um, but I'd never been to Malawi before, but I became quite fascinated by Malawi. Um, and when I, I, I eventually produced the report of the Law Commission, on the Constitution with two draft bills essentially establishing what needed to be done to make the Constitution work better and and I think that's the most influential part of what I did for did in Malawi or perhaps not um, because Every time the president of Malawi is elected, I'd like to think that I had a hand in it because I thought up the way in which it's determined when the election has to be and how it's to be conducted. Um, but that was only part of my work for Malawi. And that was all funded by, by the EU. They paid for me to go out. My subsequently, the Malawian government paid for me to go out, which I'm really rather proud of that because it meant that they wanted my advice that wasn't being foisted on them through an aid agency or something similar. And I, I did quite a lot of advice for the, for the Malawian government. And I wrote with the, with the assistance of the Attorney General, sorry, the Solicitor General, and called Steve Matenji, who afterwards was ambassador to the United States. Um, we wrote a book on administrative law for public servants based upon the English publication, The Judge Over Your Shoulder. Um, and this was the first textbook to be published, to be written in Malawi and published in Malawi. Must have come out in about 19, probably 2001, 2002, something like that. Which is something that I enjoyed doing because I'm a firm believer in best way of reforming administrative law is to teach your civil servants the principles of good decision-making. And this is a song that I've sung on many occasions and I sang it in Malawi from, from time to time. And they, as a result of that, they arranged for me to go out on three occasions, three or four occasions to, um, to conduct courses on Law and the civil servant, judicial review and the civil servant. 
this was generally done to groups of, it was a sort of an annual event for all the permanent secretaries in their departments would gather together in a resort down beside Lake Malawi and I would go and conduct this course on administrative law and forcible servants and they asked me to do it three times which was quite quite a compliment I thought um, so then there was a change of government in Malawi they decided that the president's brother should be the should be their constitution advisor and I haven't I haven't been to Malawi since I'd like to go to Malawi again but I haven't been to Malawi since What a fascinating experience you've had Yes it, Was it also during this period that you uh, prepared a report to the Select Committee on Standards and Privileges 13th report following your evidence to the Committee on Standards and Privileges to advise on the reform of their procedures following the Hamilton case. Yes. Yes, I'm afraid it's an example of nepotism. My, my friend Nigel Clemen, a prominent barrister, Nigel Clemen QC, was counsel to the inquiry that looked into the Hamilton affair and when they he suggested that I should give evidence and write the subsequent account of what should be happening and that it's a there's nothing very startling about what conclusions I reached and they all thought that mine was not the only only voice calling for a, a fairer procedure but not finding necessarily that Neil Hamilton had an unblemished record. Um, so I was pleased to do it. I've, I've since done, give evidence, evidence to quite a few select committees. I, I gave evidence to a select committee on, um, on climate change. I can't remember what it was called, but something to do with the sovereignty of Parliament. I must have, must have done it quite possibly as many as half a dozen times that I've been down to to Westminster and given evidence to select committees. I don't think, apart from Malawi, where I think well, my work was quite influential. Um, I haven't found it particularly useful to to give evidence to select committees because you so frequently find that when it's politicians, they always have not not the. Not, not to, uh, will be accused of being too harsh on politicians, but it is what I think that they often have 
the advantage of their party or themselves far too much in mind rather than the search for the political, you know, politically acceptable but well-working solution to the problem. Um, so it's put on party lines, which is inevitable under our system of government, but it does limit their usefulness. Thank you very much. I think this would be a convenient place to break yeah. before starting the section on your readership. Yeah. We, can, we can discuss that the next time we meet. Yeah. So I shall thank you most sincerely, Professor Forsyth, for another fascinating account, which I'm extremely grateful and um, greatly look forward to resuming our conversation. Thank you very much indeed.